in Isaiah 12:2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Father, we thank you for the promises throughout your word of your grace, of your power, of your salvation. And Father, we rest on that this morning and pray that as we study your word, you will be our strength and our help, that we will be instructed in ways that will enable us to better serve you, that our faith will be enhanced, that we will sense the empowering of God in all that we do. We commit ourselves to you this morning and pray that uh, you will touch us according to our needs this morning and you will bless the proclamation of your word throughout this city and throughout the world today for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to uh, Judges chapter 7, I like to read beginning at verse 4. Judges 7, 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go up with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with three hundred men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Good thing they didn't have canteens. (laughs) Wouldn't have been able to do this test. God has called Gideon to deliver Israel here, and he raised raised an army of 32,000 in order to do this, which was not a... the the odds were not good at 32,000. And you remember last time he fulfilled the word of God in in Deuteronomy in uh, saying that every man who was afraid, he could go home. This was the command that God gave in Deuteronomy when they were going into battle, that anybody who was fearful was to be allowed to go home. Not for the sake of the fearful one, but for the sake of the others, that they wouldn't be infected with that fear. 22,000 of them went home. That left 10,000. And as we noted last week, 10,000 against 135,000 are, uh, those, those odds are not real good. And, but then God said, it's still too many. You've still got too many, Gideon, because it is still possible that somebody might say, we did it by our might and by our power, even though they're outnumbered almost 14 to 1. So they were put through the drinking test, as, as we see here. And as a result of this, it was by God's own choosing, we're, we're told in this passage, as to whom drank the way that they would be chosen to stay, and those that just lapped, stuck their head in the water and, you know, totally oblivious to everything. And 300 men were all that did. Out of 10,000, 300 men were the only ones who, who dipped with the water and drank while watching, you know, aware, obviously concerned about security of the, of the formation. The others, not concerned, just, I'm thirsty, stick your head in the water and drink. 
So now Gideon has 300 men. 300 men with which to face 135,000. Gideon is faced with a situation of which the only precedent in Scripture up to that point, to whatever degree he had Scripture, we don't even know. Certainly Gideon was probably somewhat apprised of the existing Scripture. Remember there were no printing presses in those days. You didn't even have a bunch of uh, rabbis or people in training to be rabbis sitting down and copying you know, the scripture by the tens and twenties. Scripture would have been very rare in multiple copies. In fact, it would be the proclamation of the word by the priests. That would be mostly what would be known by the people. And the only precedent in scripture up to this point was the Red Sea incident when, when the armies of Egypt came after the Israelites and God brought the sea together and, and, and destroyed the army of Egypt without the use of a single fighting soldier on the part of Israel. This is the only precedent up to this moment for such a small army facing such a large army and yet possibly coming out victorious. But no sea stood between Gideon and the enemy. Just dry land. (laughs) Oh, a little creek ran through, but dry land. Stood between Gideon and the army of of the Midianites. But in spite of all of this, Gideon does not lose heart. Because as we read in this passage, the Lord had given him a promise. And that's given in verse 7, where we read that the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men, the 300 who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. I will deliver you by this force. The emphasis is on I, that is the Lord. I will deliver you. We're on the, mount, we're on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is on the southern edge of the entrance into the Esdraelon or Jezreel Valley from the Beshan Valley or the Wadi of Herod, which drains out into the Jordan Valley. You have actually a watershed here. The spring of Herod, as we noted last week, the spring which means trembling because of the 22,000 who were trembling were told to go home. The spring of Herod actually drains eastward towards the Jordan River. So just past where it comes in is the watershed. Now, it's not a high watershed. It's not like a mountain ridge. It's just two valleys coming together, and there's kind of a high point. And the stream that runs through the Jezreel Valley goes out to the Mediterranean, and the Herod Spring drains the other way past Beshan down into the Jordan Valley. So they're right near this water divide at Herod Spring up on Mount Gilboa. And looking out across the valley over towards the hill of Mara, which means the hill of the teacher, and, and over there, at the base of that hill, was spread out this vast army of Midianites and Amalekites. What we have to do here, as we look at this, is give tremendous credit to these 300. These 300 men for having faith in God and faith in their leader, Gideon. Because it was ridiculous, absolutely absurd, to think of 300 men facing 135,000. I mean, 13 and a half to 1 those are bad odds, but 450 to 1, those aren't good odds at all, you know? If you can just picture yourself, one lone soldier against 450 other individuals, how long will you last? Well, probably not long. So what they were placing their faith in was that Gideon had heard the word of the Lord, and he had declared it unto them, and that God would be their deliverer. And they sat on the hillside, looking out over the camp. We have to realize they're human beings. They must have had questions in their minds, especially as darkness fell and they looked out over there and they saw thousands of campfires burning. And knowing around those campfires are 
altogether 135,000 enemy soldiers. And you couldn't help but have a case of the butterflies, you know, sitting up there looking at this thing and knowing that as soon as the word comes, you have to attack this group. You're going to do battle with this overwhelming army. But God knew their fears. God completely understood and he had compassion on them. And so God provided some needed encouragement. Most of us, I think, are familiar with Psalm 46.1 where we read, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of need. We're going to look at that whole psalm in a few minutes here, but I think this is, it was the peace of God that came down on the hearts of those men. And God gave them uh, an answer to their fear, something to calm their butterflies. Let's, let's read on in Judges 7, beginning at verse 9. Now, the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And Gideon came, behold, a man, when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell flat, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. <laughs> God did this in order to allay the fears of Gideon. God didn't come down and say, Gideon, what's the matter with you? I promised you. Why are you afraid? He knew that Gideon was fearful. Gideon was flesh and blood. And so he said to, to Gideon, if you're afraid, I want to give you something to encourage you. So he said, take your bodyguard, your, your armor bearer, and sneak down across the valley to the outskirts of the camp and do some eavesdropping. I'm sure Gideon thought, Lord, how's that going to help? Just listen to a bunch of soldiers talk. You know how they talk. Won't be very uplifting, probably. But he obeyed. And so the two of them crept down, they crept across the valley, they crept to the outskirts of the camp and listened quietly. Now where could they have come? They could have come at numerous points along the outposts of the Midianite camp. I mean, 135,000 people camp over a fairly broad area. And, and so what, what happened next is an absolutely clear demonstration of the sovereignty of God and of his care for his servant. His, his intimate care for this man whom he has called to do this very, very difficult task. When Gideon and his armor bearer came within earshot of, the enemy, of, of an enemy tent, they, they were still and they listened to the conversation. And he overheard one soldier telling another about his dream. Oh, how exciting. Listen to somebody tell about his dream. But as we think about this, we, we have to realize it could only be by the providential hand of God that Gideon would be at the right place at the right moment 
to hear a Midianite, or maybe an Amalekite, we're not told, but assume it's a Midianite, reveal a dream that he had just had, a prophetic dream. And more than that, to hear the correct interpretation of that dream by a pagan Midianite. What a dream it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple dream. We're all camped here and this big bread rolls into the camp, squishes everything. This barley loaf. Well, you know, barley loaves, you can't view a loaf of bread in those days like we lo loaf of bread. It's kind of a small circular thing. Obviously, this was a big one. Expanded man in many fold. <laughs> and it come rolling down into the camp and knocked over the tents, especially, uh, apparently, uh, the Midianite tent, a, a symbolic tent for all of it, and just flattened this whole thing, you know. Now, first of all, many commentators like to say, and, and maybe they're right, that um, it's a barley loaf because barley was the cheap grain. Um, wheat was the more desirable grain, and since the Midianites and the Malachites were stealing everything good, all that was left was the, was the more crummy barley. And so the barley loaf could be interpreted as Israel because Israel was forced to eat barley because the wheat was being all ripped off by the Midianites. The question is, did the Midianites even know who Gideon was? Why would they know who Gideon was? He was the least of his clan. He, he was the youngest in his family. And the only fame he had accrued so far was in, in knocking down an, an altar to Baal. Now, how far did that information go, you know? It went out to at least certain of Israel, but would the Midianites have heard of this? How would they know anything about Gideon? It would seem very unlikely they would know. I mean, it wasn't like he was you know, General Patton or somebody, you know, that everybody would have known. He'd never been a general before in a force that we know of. The scripture makes no comment of him ever having been a soldier before. And so we have to look at this as total revelation by God put not only in the mind of the dreamer, but in the mouth of the interpreter. I don't think the interpreter even knew what he was talking about. First of all, of all, how did Gideon understand it? You know, Midianite and Israelite are not the same language. So somehow God had to give him ears to hear or give the Midianite uh, an Israeli voice to speak at that particular, or Hebrew, I should say, voice to speak at that time. And, but whatever the case was, Gideon heard these words that came out of the mouth of this pagan Midianite. Now, it's, it's possible, of course, that the Midianite had no clue what he was saying. As promised, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is literally with his people. In Matthew 28, 20, we have, of course, the, the verse that we so often quote, where Jesus said to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This has been true of the church for the 2,000 years of its existence. And God is with those three men who are there, um, you know, as prisoners of the rebels in Colombia. Um, God is at work wherever. Some of you probably know the story of Archie Mitchell, who was captured, uh, I don't know, 30, 20 to 30 years ago um, and carried off into captivity. And there were prayer for him, prayer for him, prayer for him, but, but he has never been heard of since, even though there have been reports years and years ago that he was still alive, maybe somewhere. But, right, Becky Thompson's father, Rachel Thompson's grandfather. And, but you know, God was with him for however long he was still alive. You know, is he still alive? It's 
probably not. Likely now, but God was intimately with Gideon here and with these 300. And, and the promise that Jesus makes here when he says, Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, is not a promise in general terms like, well, you know, God is everywhere, so obviously God is with you. No, uh, it's an intimate, specific promise. He's saying, I will literally be with you as my child, really and personally, wherever you go and whatever you do. Let's turn to the 46th Psalm, because I think that Psalm so beautifully portrays this imminence of God with His people. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in, her mit in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. This and many passages in Scripture help us to understand that God does not call us to do the work against all odds in our strength. We're just to be there and believing Him to do the work through us. Because really we all face the odds of 300 to 135,000, so to speak, if we're trying to deal with the forces of hell in our own strength. Even if we're trying to deal with the forces of the flesh within us, we can't do it. It's too powerful for us. But God is our strength and our refuge. And, and He tells us to be still, cease striving, and, and know that He is God, because the Lord of hosts is with us. And, and this was the message that God gave to Gideon, and through Gideon to the 300 men. Let's read on in Judges 7 and see what happens here. Verse 15, And it came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. We don't know whether the Midianite soldier who gave the interpretation of this dream believed what he was saying. He was probably prophesying without even knowing what he was saying. Or, or at best, he was probably just jesting. Oh, that's, that's Gideon, you know, that's, that's Israel and Gideon. Ha, 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 ha. Whatever the case, Gideon took it as absolute truth, as absolute revelation from God, reassuring him that the victory will be Israel's 
in spite of the great odds. And, and we read in the passage that, that Joshua humbled himself in worship before God Almighty because God Almighty controls the affairs of mankind and yet he reaches out to meet the individual needs of a man like Gideon. God would put a dream in the, in, in the mind of the Midianite where Gideon would come. God knew where Gideon would come, so he put the dream in the mind of the Midianite and he put the interpretation in the other one, all in earshot of Gideon at the exact moment that he needed to hear it. I mean, and anybody who thinks that that just is pure chance, I mean, hasn't a clue what life is about or anything else. It's absolute miraculous <laughs> intervention by God. One of the things we discover the longer we walk with the Lord is that He is a God of detail. He takes care of even the little details uh, of life. And He cares for matters both great and small. It's, it's real easy for us to go back and become like the deists were, who, who believe that God is up there, He's transcendent, and He's over it all, but He's got more things to do than to listen to some individual throw up some little weenie prayer, you know, uh, before Him. But that is not what Scripture says at all. Yes, He controls the order of the galaxies, and if you've ever taken a little study of astronomy, you discover, whoa, we're talking about big time. I mean, such a vast thing. Just in the years I've been alive, astronomy has so expanded, it's incredible. And yet He cares for all of that. He, he calls all the stars by name, we're told. Well, you know how many stars are out there? <laughs> Oh, you know, our galaxy alone has a hundred billion of them, and ours is just a mediocre galaxy. And there are tens of thousands of galaxies. And yet he's already, yet he's absolutely ready to meet the need of individual hearts. This past month of October, the planet Earth hit six billion in population. We're now over six billion, going on seven. <laughs> but, but we've arrived at six billion. And, and to know that God knows the hearts of every single one of six billion individuals. And as those individuals would, would turn to Him, He speaks to the hearts of six billion as if they were the only individual. He talks to you as if you're the only person in this universe. How He can do it, I have no idea. I mean, it makes computers look like a piece of junk in comparison, you know. That God can commune individually with six billion people while keeping the trillions and quadrillions of stars all in order at the same time. You know, he's pretty busy out there. But this, this helps us to understand that he is transcendent and eminent all at the same time. And to me, one of the passages of Scripture which displays this most beautifully is Psalm 113, which portrays in the first half of the psalm the transcendence of God and the second half... Uh, portion of the psalm, the eminence. Eminence, you know, the, the presence of God here. Let me read Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. He is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like our God, who is enthroned on high, the transcendent God? And yet we move shift gears right into imminence here in verse 6. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. 
He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. He's <laughs> enthroned above the earth, above the heavens, and yet he cares about the individual barren woman who's in pain because of her barrenness. Gideon was excited. <laughs> you know, he and Pura coming back, I think they had to be really careful to keep their voices down so they wouldn't be heard. Yeah, well, how could this be, you know? Uh, creeping back up to the, to the Israelite camp. And I think he rushed back into the camp and he shouted, get up, you guys, because this is what the Lord has said. This is what the Lord has promised. And, and he raised up his men that they would be ready for battle. And I think the powerful proclamation of his revelation greatly encouraged and excited the 300 men. I mean, let's, let's be practical. There were probably one or two of them who said, you sure, Gideon? Are you, are you getting a little bit overexcited about something like this? <laughs> There's always somebody like that in the crowd. But, but the point is, all 300 of them got up and prepared and obeyed Gideon's orders. That's the most important thing. There are, you know, some, some make it like everything you do, you've got to go forward in absolute perfect faith without the slightest measure of doubt about what you're doing. But that's not naturally human. I keep going back to the, uh, to the parable that Jesus gave in the New Testament of the two brothers. Remember, the one said, sure, I'll go out in the field and work, and didn't. The other one said, no, I'm not going to do it, but then did. And he's the one who got the praise. I mean, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. He was disobedient, through, but he eventually felt thought better of it when he did it. So it's the doing of it that proves the faith. As James tells us over and over again, you can proclaim your faith from now to doomsday. But if we don't do it, it's, it's meaningless. So we can say, well, Lord, I'm not really sure if this is what I should do, but I'm going to go ahead and do it as if it were. This is what he's looking for, the obedience, even if the faith is not strong yet as it ought to be. And I don't think it was. Absolutely rock solid in the hearts of all 300 of these men. I, I think even Gideon still had a twinge or two now and then. Because even with all the promises in the world, when you look at those odds, it can be scary. Particularly, I mean, you as flesh and blood are going up an army of flesh and, against flesh and blood. He divided his little band into three companies, 100 guys each. And I think he sent one to the east, one to the west, and then he approached leading the central group from the south. Going into battle in the dead of night is not orthodox procedure in the days we're talking about. They didn't have night goggles, you know. I mean, they're creeping through the landscape in a dark, dark night. I don't think it was moonlit, because that would have made it more difficult for them. It was a dark night, and, and they were creeping through. And you know, it's even more unorthodox to go into battle primarily armed with a torch and a trumpet. <laughs> I'm going to burn you or blow your eardrums out, you know? <laughs> so you better watch out. The scripture specifically says that when the 10,000 guys left, that they left their equipment behind, specifically trumpets. I'm sure there weren't, you know, all men weren't, didn't go to battle equipped with trumpets, shofars, you know, the ram's horn. And, but there were enough in the original body of men that was left. And, and who knows, maybe that's why God chose that number, because there were only 300 shofars. I don't know. God is sovereign in all of this. But, but here they are, going into battle. I, I think they had swords strapped to their waist, but they got torch in one hand and trumpet in the other. 
Scripture specifically says they had the torch in the left hand, the trumpet in the right hand. Now, could that mean that all 300 were right-handed? <laughs> I, I don't know. Probably no Benjamites in the midst. <laughs> Where did Gideon get this plan? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us, but I believe God inspired this plan in Gideon's heart. I mean, how many would think of a plan like this? You know, if I were doing it, I'd, I'd say, you know, put plots of clips in your thing and get your M16s ready and we're going to sneak up on the outside of the camp and we're just going to blast away, you know. Before they separated into the three groups and parted company, Gideon instructed his men that as soon as they were in place and poised for the attack, they were to watch him for the signal and do exactly what he did. It was dark. No radios. How's the guy who's, I mean, you got 100 guys spread out in a line here, and the next 200 spread out on the other flanks, out like so. I mean, I think these guys were spread out over a, a space probably uh, close to a mile, trying to circle at least a portion of this camp here. So there's no way in the dark anybody very far away from Gideon is going to see what Gideon does. Only those nearest to Gideon are actually going to see what he does, and then they will do what Gideon does, and the next guy will see what he does. And so you can understand, it would just go ching, 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 you know, if you're a gardener, you're saying this all, you don't know when this thing is going to end. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there. That's at least what the Midianite guards will see. Well, let's, let's read what happens next. We may not be able to get to it all, but verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just posted the watch. So there just been a change of guards. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers which were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shita, towards Zerorah, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Gideon. I'm sorry, pursued Midian, <laughs> not Gideon. The Israelite attack occurred right after the changing of the guards. You know, the, the guards aren't settled in yet. They've just been changed. The scripture tells us that it, it was at the beginning of the middle watch. Well, you have first watch from 6 to 10, second watch from 10 to 2, third watch from 2 to 6. So it was a little after 10 o'clock in the evening. It was a dark night. Uh, the guards are just kind of getting settled in, and they're not really, you know, they're a little spooky maybe yet, and all of a sudden this whole thing breaks out. What happened next is very unmilitary-like. You're going to attack, so what do you do? You break this, this clay jar that you've got around your torch, shatter that, hold your torch, and blow on a shofar. Well, you know, that's fine if you're the signal guy telling the army to, to attack, but I mean, this is all you're doing. 
as what everybody's doing. And then in between the blasts and the shofar, you're shouting, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Well, it may not have been very military-like, but it scared the Dickens out of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Gideon broke his clay jar that shielded the flame of his torch, and, and so the, the, the flame now blazed forth, unshielded. And we're not talking about itty-bitty little candle here. We're talking about a good-sized flame that, that uh, is, is going up now. It's more exposed to oxygen now, so it bla blazes brighter than it was when it was contained, partially uh, contained inside the, the clay jar. And uh, within a few seconds, it was repeated. down the two sides of the Israelite line, to the left and to the right. It had been a dark, quiet night, and suddenly that quiet was shattered, was pierced by blazing torches. Now these guys, I don't think, were like half a mile away. I think they were pretty close to the outskirts of the, of the camp. They were probably less than 100 yards away when all this happened. It's a very, very dark night, and your eyes get accustomed to the darkness, and all of a sudden there's a flaring up of a torch, and another one, and another one, and another one. It suddenly becomes to you much more than it really is. And when you hear blasts on the shofar starting from the center and radiating out towards the two sides, and you hear these men shouting out there. You know, throughout history, shouting has been a part of battle. Uh, not all forces moved in perfect, quiet advance towards each other. Uh, there was often a lot of yelling and screaming to try to frighten the other side. Um, the Scots did it whenever they attacked. Uh, the Picts did it when they, I mean, the Picts not only painted their bodies blue and with little else on them, but screamed and yelled as they attacked, and it scared the other guys, you know. Some of you, like me, who have your ancestry uh, north of England uh, have quite a a tradition to look back to. This is piercing the darkness. You know, you've read the book, maybe piercing the darkness. Well, this is piercing the darkness. And it really is. It is a spiritual warfare, literally here. Not just physical. It is a spiritual warfare. And the guards were absolutely terrified because they thought, whoa, we're surrounded. And they come crashing into the camp, not from one side, but from three sides. They all come running into the camp, yelling and screaming, we're, we're surrounded. They're attacking. Get up and get prepared to fight and helter-skelter from all the tents. These people come tumbling out who were just about, you know, maybe already drifted off or were, well, somebody had already had a dream that night, right? So probably they were asleep and you, you suddenly are awakened by people shouting and, and you don't come out in perfect order. And so they come tumbling out of their tents. It's dark. Probably a lot of the campfires had, had really hunkered down. And the crescendo of noise and chaos as the Israelites were continuing to approach the camp, blowing their shofars and yelling. It was total panic. It was total panic. If this had been inside a coliseum, I mean, everybody had been killed trying to get out the doors. But of course, what really happened here and, and why this was such a panic is told us in verse 32, uh, 22. When they blew the trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against the other, even throughout the whole army. The Lord convinced each one that the guy you see running next to you in the Israelite, you better kill him. So they're out there stabbing each other. And Israel just stand back there blowing the horn. And the army's wiping itself out. And then they flee. They run through the darkness. I, I don't know how many of you have actually gone cross-country in the dark night without any light. It's scary. 
I've done it and fallen in a canyon. It wasn't a lot of fun. It wasn't because I was being, well, maybe I was being stupid, but I mean, it wasn't because I intended to be stupid. It's because I'd been too long in the mountaintop and, and was trying to get back too late. And uh, it, it's, it's dangerous. You're going to trip over everything and everyone. And of course, when all, there's a lot of other people running and, and a lot of yelling going on and you don't know, are these the enemies? Enemy? The Lord put an inordinate terror in their hearts. We have to, I think, believe that. The Lord puts a, a, a terror that was unreprieved. There, there was nobody saying, hey, guys, hold it up. There was no Stonewall Jackson here, you know, saying, all right, guys, stop, hold it. Let's, let's turn around and fight. No. Everybody was frightened from the commanders of the army who, who ran, it seems like, ahead of the army because they later get captured and get their heads cut off. I mean, it's the, the, just a pell-mell, total panic. And the Lord was behind the panic. Now, several places are mentioned in this passage that I read to you this morning. And most of those places cannot be absolutely located. We have a pretty good idea where Abel Mahola probably was. But some of these other places are, are unknown in terms of where they're located, except in a general sense of the word as to where they were. What, what seems to be obvious from it all is that the army fled from the hill of Mara through the wadi or, or the valley of Herod down towards the Jordan and they were running in a south, uh, get your direction here, they were running in a southeasterly direction because that's the way the valley trends towards the Jordan River. They wanted to get over into Gilead where they hoped they would have some security over there. The only thing they were going to have to do, of course, is get across the Jordan River. So they were running for the fords, the normal fords of the Jordan, which were located at Abel Mahola in that proximate area. And, and so they were running like crazy down. I mean, that's 20 to 25 miles from where they were camped. Through the night, you're running with more energy you normally have because you're spooked. How many of them tripped and fell and trampled with others? How many killed each other? Thousands. So what Gideon does this. whoa, they're running. Some of you guys go back and call back the army. <laughs> the 30, 32,000, tell them to come back. We need them now. And so several went off to send messages out and to bring the 32,000 back to, to help in a pursuit and to cut them off at the, well, not at the pass, but at the ford. <laughs> cut them off at the ford, right where the river is uh, shallowest. And uh, we'll, we'll stop right there and uh, <laughs> we'll finish him off next week, give him a little time to, little time to uh, percolate here. <laughs>